Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bombas socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Tales to Terrify and the all-new Far-Fetched Fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 412. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, I hope everyone is fine and dandy. I'll tell you what's coming in today's show. First up, I have an interview with Dan Vigano, who is science reporter for BuzzFeed. And we're talking about the politics of getting to Mars and NASA. And it's just fascinating how kind of deep that well goes. Then we have the main fiction, which is Karma Among the Cloud Kings by Brian Trent. Then, last but by no means least... JJ Campanella with his science news. Don't forget this show is sponsored by Octagon Technology. 20 years in the IT industry. Helping you out with your little problems there. Big thank you to Clive and Diane. Now before we get into the main show, I just want to give a nice little plug if you would bear with me. One of our narrators, and actually who turned into a a fantastic writer as well, and have played this young gentleman on the show a couple of times, Josh Roseman. He's got his collection out, The Clockwork Russian and Other Stories. And like I say, we've played a couple of stories there by Josh. Like I say, I first was introduced to Josh, a fantastic narrator there, but he came up, he started writing stories. And we're kind of on Starship Sova, followed him along because, you know, to get published in... I think it was Asimov's where he was going. Do you know what I mean? To get published in there is a feat amongst feet. And, you know, Josh has been putting out the work there and doing fantastic. So his new book's out. I'll put a link on so you can go and have a look at it. Like I say, we played, I think it was Greener. But in there, you've got a whole collection of stories there. I'm just going to name you a few there. 27 Jennifers. Now, I'm sure that was one of them as well. Bring on the Rain. Like I say, Greener. 113 feet. Belief, the clockwork Russian, and there's a whole kind of stack of them. And like I say, if Sheila Williams is saying okay, do you know what I mean? Trust us, this lad can write. Do you know what I mean? So I'll put, put a link on. 
pop over there and have a look. You know, come over to the website, have a look, and then just go and, and treat yourself. A little a bit of short fiction there. You know what I mean? One of the young, bright sparks of science fiction. Josh, good look on that, Squire. So first up is a little interview that I did with a gentleman called Dan Vergano. And Dan is the science news editor at BuzzFeed. And, you know, with all this kind of hype with the Martian, do you know what I mean? The kind of, the whole thing's been put in the spotlight. It was, I wanted to have a little chat with someone who, you know, just kind of knew the kind of the dark, dirty side of NASA and, you know, the politics and the politicians and, and money. Do you know what I mean? Because this is the kind of the main thing. Dan, it's lovely to have you on Starship Sova, you know, taking your time out there. It's, thank you so much. Great, great to talk to you. Thanks, thanks for the opportunity. Dan, tell us about then this. You know, just bring up the speed if you don't mind. First, what is this NASA report? You know, this NASA's journey to Mars. So, uh, two Thursdays ago, uh, NASA released a uh, very nice uh, report, uh, about thirty-two pages, uh, called NASA's Journey to Mars, which is a kind of glossy summary of uh, their hopes and dreams, uh, the agency's dreams for getting to the red planet. Um, it lays out uh, what uh, they have built and what they hope to build, uh, build rather than get to Mars, uh, the goal being to get around Mars by 2030. Um, the problem is that uh, the thing has, doesn't have a lot of numbers and hard dates, and a lot of the equipment that they're talking about, they haven't started building and they haven't gotten the money for it. They haven't even asked for it uh, from Congress. So uh, while the report was really nice, it was uh, good to have all this information sort of in one place, uh, and it does take advantage of uh, interest in the movie The Martian and uh, a congressional hearing that was happening the next day, uh, which is what I ended up writing about. Um, it didn't have a lot of specifics. It just was sort of a glossy uh, brochure, essentially, laying out, um, hey, someday we'll build this neat thing that's going to take everybody to Mars, and it'll be really cool, and here's some pretty pictures of it. But am I right in thinking as well, though, there is actually some parts, you know, some like capsules that have been built? This is, yeah, this is true. Uh, they tested uh, in December uh, a reentry unmanned of the, of the crew capsule uh, for the first part of this system. A lot of people don't realize they think this capsule is somehow the thing that's going to take people to Mars. But really what that capsule is, is just something to get you up into space onto an unbuilt uh, habitat module that will take you to Mars on, on, with an unbuilt uh, solar uh, rocket. Um, so it's a cool thing. It's called the Orion uh, crew capsule. Um, it, there's, a, there's a service module that actually the Europeans are, are, are building that would let it go further. Um, and they do have that built, and they're, they're building another one. They're doing welding right now. They're sending out news releases about it. Uh, so that's cool. Uh, I mean, the thing did survive the flight through the atmosphere on the test really nicely. Uh, it's bigger than the Apollo capsule, which is sort of a scaled-up, uh, up-to-date version of. The other thing that they are building is the uh, SLS, which is this jumbo rocket uh, that would be able to take uh, stuff to Mars. Um, it would be uh, first flight. They're hoping now 2018, which would be unmanned, uh, maybe a, a trip by the moon. And then the first flight uh, with people in it, they're talking about 2023, which is a slip of two years from what they were saying last year. So it's one of these projects that's being built, uh, but the first launch date keeps on sliding back faster than it's actually being built. So, uh, I mean, they do have engines. They do have parts for that ready to go where they haven't built the whole uh, Magilla, the, the rocket itself yet. And maybe 2018, they're thinking now for its first launch. So 
I mean, does NASA normally, is this how NASA kind of normally does things? You know, puts out like what you say, like these glossy brochures <laughs> for a, a big no. announcement. Well, you know, you got to realize NASA is a very peculiar uh, agency <laughs> and, uh, you know, there's not a regular way to do anything. Uh, there's two models, essentially, uh, we're talking about here. One is the Apollo uh, the moon race, right, which is you just pile a, a lot of money uh, into a project and you build a lot of parts um, in a hurry. Uh, then there's the space shuttle, which is more resembles, uh, where they had a lot of grand saloon plans and then budget reality sort of intruded. Uh, and the thing got cut in half from what they were basically hoping to have uh, at the beginning. And the fear is you'll have the same result here. They'll eventually get some hardware. It'll take longer than they wanted. It won't do as much as they hoped. It'll cost more and, and not be as reliable uh, by being strung out over time. And that's the process that you know people in Congress and people in NASA fear uh, is happening in the kind of fight that's going on right now over the future direction of NASA, when and how it's going to get to Mars. It'd be nice to find out, Dan, what's your kind of personal thing? Is it this just like this kind of political tit-for-tat, you know, between the kind of NASA and every, you know, political, <laughs> or will we, will they actually deliver something, you know, around the right. 2030s? It's, will we actually get there? Um, <laughs> Go on, put your money where your mouth is. It, it it really depends. Um, right now, it seems like the best bet for NASA getting there is if uh, they stop uh, having to pay for the, the International Space Station around 2024, which already looks problematic. So if they can get that uh, $2, 3000000000 billion off their books after 2024 and pile it into uh, the space launch system and building this uh, crew module, uh, and other stuff uh, that you need to get to Mars. It's, it's, you need a lot of things that haven't been built yet. You know, the solar rocket to take you there. Um, then it's possible that you could see them sending somebody to one of Mars's moons or to one of these trips where you go around the planet and then come back. That would be a little disappointing, right? Six months in space, you wave to the planet and you come back six months later. But you could see something like that happening in 2030. Uh, that's problematic. Uh, they have to get Congress to sign off and say, okay, bye-bye, uh, International Space Station. Boy, we hope the Russians or, or, or you know, some hotelier uh, buys it. <laughs> Otherwise, it's going to fall in the ocean like uh, Skylab and be another loss of a great resource, although an expensive one to maintain. Um, if that doesn't happen, then, man, the, the can gets kicked down uh, the road uh, later on. Um, uh, the, there's this window to Mars that opens, you know, in 18 months to three-year um, orbital configurations, and so you know you run, you only have about three of those a decade. Uh, you start to delay, and then pretty soon you're talking about the 2040s uh, later on. Uh, and if you're asking when are we going to actually land there, you know, people have told me uh, people make noises about it being in the 2030s, but other people have been more sanguine about having it happen around the 2060s. Um, and just inevitably, uh, technological progress, they think, will sort of push it to becoming uh, doable by then. Um, it's, it's just really not an easy task. It's, it's unbelievably, it's, it's 10 times, 100 times harder than, than the moon landing. And trying to do it on the same kind of budget, even as the moon landing, looks very daunting. I mean, it, it does seem hard, like you say, hard there. I mean, even kind of in the private sector, they seem to be struggling. I wonder if you can kind of just enlighten us a little bit. You know, right. how was SpaceX kind of, they crashed and burned not long ago with a, with a, a rocket. 
Right. I mean, one of the really interesting things about the political fight that's going on here, and it's at least three-sided, uh, is SpaceX. SpaceX is trying to build a rocket called the Falcon Heavy, which would be uh, in the league, uh, not quite as big, but, but in the league of this SLS that NASA is trying to build, or that rather you might say that space state senators are trying to have NASA build to keep their workforce employed in those states. Um, at any rate, if SpaceX is successful and has this Falcon Heavy running, uh, before the SLS goes, then that uh, is an, will be an interesting discussion to have. Why are we building this thing when we can buy one from the private sector? For SpaceX, the problem, of course, is that their their uh, you know their Falcon 9 blew up. Uh, I think it was the 19th launch, um, and a, they're saying a strut came loose and it you know, played havoc with the second stage and 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 caused the loss of the thing. They're supposed to produce an investigation report in uh, a few weeks within a few weeks, and then get started, um, maybe have the next launch of this thing, I think around April or May, and be back in business. Uh, but if NASA or the FAA says, um, you know, their their investigation isn't complete, or then they'll, they'll have problems getting back in business. A, a bigger problem, though, is Congress, uh, where you have people there who are very much uh, wedded to the older contractors, uh, Boeing, United Launch Systems, and don't seem too thrilled to have SpaceX as a competitor to these sort of, um, you know, already existing, long-running, uh, politically connected uh, contractors, and and have been trying to cut uh, the commercial crew uh, budget, which is the money that SpaceX is getting from NASA and has helped it develop its rockets. And there's, I mean, this is just naked power politics here. You know, people have. Um, even people, if Boeing is in your district, then, you know, you really don't want SpaceX to succeed because that might mean less jobs in your district. And if you're a powerful congressman, you know, you're going to uh-huh. push and pull and poke and and try and get NASA to, to move away from them and towards, you know, your guys. And you can see that in the, the hearings. I mean, the questions are pretty naked that uh, they're asking, you know, why don't you get rid of SpaceX now that they've had this problem and move back to just using you know the one contractor who happens to be in my district, I and mean, it's it's not subtle. Um, so that's that's what's going on. I, I, it's, we're saying like you re, your listeners may not understand, NASA is not a central agency in the political debate here in the U.S. It's really a side thing. And so the people who are arguing about it are either people who have a really uh, crass financial interest in it. You know, there's workers in my district, or people who are space advocates. And it turns out that the former are more powerful than the latter. Uh, you know, there's this is not a big debate in the U.S. Should we go to Mars? This is kind of a sidelight that's of interest to the technologically inclined, and it's it's not so much you know front and center the way like national security or um, the economy is. Well, then, and it's, yeah, yeah. I was going to say, Dan, let's put you the, the big question and put you on the spot then. What do you think we need to get to Mars? You know, because I've just been here and, you know, you, kind of, you read everything right. and everything. And I even heard, like, even getting it funded, you know, like the likes of reality TV to get things funded yeah. and everything. What, I'm just wondering, you know, what do you think as a, you know, personally? Because you you must see this going on, this struggle, politics and everything every day of your life, you know, when you're reporting. Right. I'm just wondering, you know, what do you think? I think a couple of things need to happen. Uh, the, the first is that the economy worldwide needs to recover so that the U.S. Uh, tax receipts come in and people stop freaking out about the budget uh, deficit here. And so that austerity politics here doesn't dominate the political discussion and makes uh, the kind of spending that NASA looks like, um, this discretionary spending, doesn't look so impossible so that NASA's budget can grow in a healthy way to do this kind of thing. I, you know, I wrote this piece that was 
saying, you know, the congressman who's the head of the House Science Committee is an interesting guy, basically said that NASA's report uh, was a fantasy, and the reason is there's no money in the whole thing. And what, so what we need is the economy to recover so that the federal government isn't so straightened uh, so that they can see themselves giving the 5%, you know, or $2 billion, $3 billion a year increase to NASA on top of its existing budget to, to get this done. That's the first thing. The, the second thing that probably also needs to happen is that launch costs need to come down. Chemical rockets are just a really expensive, inefficient way to do things. Uh, even if SpaceX, you know, cuts the cost in half, it's still, you know, hideously expensive to get a pound of stuff into space. So we need that to continue somehow. Um, with them cutting costs uh, to make this seem reasonable. Um, and the, the thing that everybody talks about is you need presidential leadership. So you need a president who, who wins, you know, in 2020 or 2024, who has made this uh, an issue. They say, yes, indeed, I think that we should, you know, uh, uh, be great again and, you know, go to new places and explore Mars. And by the way, we're going to need international people. Uh, we're going to need help from Europe. We're going to need help from Japan. We're going to need help from you know who knows else to do this, folks. And and that person wins the election and sells the public both on on spending their own money to go to Mars and uh, getting in bed with uh, uh, foreigners to do it, um, which you know some parts of the country aren't so cool with. Um, and then a lot of the rhetoric you hear from these people who want to go back to Mars are you know babbling about putting the U.S. flag back on the moon like that's important somehow. They're, they're people whose patriotism is very much touched by this project, and they're not uh, amenable to, you know, the international agreements. They just become, they're just, there's no other way to do it. I mean, right now, even the crew capsule, as I mentioned, the service module for it is being built with Europe's help. That's something that nobody talks about, and I don't think that they like to talk about it. So you have to have a big political sales job with the presidential leadership. You have to have a better economy, and you have to have better technology. Once we get those things licked, then it'll be easy. <laughs> <laughs> it does. I mean, it does seem more, you know, like it's pol it's political's got its kind of tentacles stuck into it more than what say technology, because technology always seems to be improving. It does seem right. the, the thing that's like the the, the weird and through treacles is bloody politics issues. Right. Yeah. No. It's it's all a question of political will. Uh, you know, we spend um, a lot more money building you know tanks and jets that don't work worth a damn. But those have a political constituency, you know, and this one doesn't. You know, the, the the part of the public that wants to go to Mars is very fervent about it and well-intended. And, you know, they may have a point, but, you know, there's lots of things like that that don't get funded, uh, you know, that, that, you know, affect school kids. Um, so it's a tough sell. Do you, you think... Know, you have to... <laughs> yeah. Sorry, Doug, I'm just going to just jump in. Do you think... In our lifetime, do you know what I mean? This it, it this is the next kind of the goal for for NASA or for you know the private sector. Do you think in our lifetime we we will get there? Um, how well? How old are you? Well, I'm uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm forty nine. Do you know what I mean? And, and it's always uh, been where well, it's <laughs> I think that you'll see somebody orbit the joint for sure. Uh, you know, Elon Musk says he wants to to die there. Uh, you know, he seems pretty determined to me. I wouldn't want to bet against him. Um, uh, but, yeah, in terms of having a base like, you know, we, we or even landings like we had on the moon, man, I would I would see those until the 2060s if I was betting now. If I was betting $10 with you, I'd bet nine of them <laughs> on 2060 and one of those dollars in, on the 2030s. Um, that's just the way it looks. Uh, so I would tell you, you know, uh, keep exercising, you know, uh, drink <laughs> <Taking> the vitamins. 
Southwest, don't smoke, you know, maybe. <laughs> what What do you think then, Dan? Because got, we've got this kind of project going, you know, this Mars One project, you know, where the, you know, I mean, I know it's just kind of a light, it's a very, light thing, but it's it seems like they're, they're trying to even get people just to go up there, you know, for a one way journey. What's your thoughts on that? Uh, I I talked to a bunch of space industry people um, last year for a story about it, and their consensus was that it's crazy. Um, that they just didn't see any way that a reality TV show could raise the money. The, the numbers are talking about raising six billion dollars seems ambitious for what they're trying to do, and seems way too low by like a factor of. You know, it's 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 an order of magnitude low in terms of what you'd need to actually get to Mars. Um, so it's fun to talk about. It's cool to do, but talking to a lot of people, they don't seem uh, talking to a lot of people in the space industry. They don't see the serious effort. I've spoken. I, I guess I've, I maybe it's only by email. I've interviewed the fellow behind it, and, and they have engaged. Um, you know, some serious people to look at plans and things like that. They're not. You know, it's 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 not that they haven't thought about these things or don't know about these things, but the criticisms uh, of the project really seem to outweigh uh, the technical work they've done. Um, it's it's hard. You know, MIT did a very critical look at the kind of mission they're talking about and and how much trouble they would have. You know, basically saying if they actually did the things they did, people would would start to asphyxiate. You know, in about a month or so. Um, and you talk to the author of that study, and they hate to be critical. They want to go to Mars, too. I mean, they're engineers or space people, too. That's something you have here. There's a lot of enthusiastic people. They don't want to be sort of, you know, peeing on this thing that they love. But, you know, you've got to be really hard-headed about this. And, boy, you look at something that's based on a reality TV show, and it's really hard to look at this and say, gosh, this is going to be it. I mean, you talk there. Is that what, is that what the kind of the figures they're bandying around at the moment? Six billion dollars? That's what uh, Mars One. That was the number they put on their project. Maybe they've changed it since last year. No, uh, hell no. A uh, uh, hundred billion uh, or more was uh, gotten to the moon, and that was you know this is a converted nineteen seventy two dollars to two thousand and ten. But it was a lot of money, and it was a lot of money all at once. And you know the thing that people don't realize is that the American public got sick of spending all that money by nineteen sixty five. Uh, the popularity of going to the moon had like dropped, and it's never really recovered. You know, this, so like the vast public would really, really like to have a defense department and would like to have a social security checks. But when you say to them, you know, okay, would you spend more on going back to the moon or going back to Mars? Then the support drops away really quickly, and that that happened sort of as like a side effect of, uh, well, it's hard to draw a cause and effect, but that happened amid like the hoo ha about Apollo, and like this is 1965, so. That kind of binge spending that a lot of people would like to see, you know, it's, it's unlikely to return. And if it did happen, you, the people would get buyer's remorse very quickly. You know, you might be left with a, a bad result. Do you think in, in any way, Dan, any any tiny seed of a germ of a way that this film, The Martians, kind of invigorated yep. and kick-started our kind of looking for Mars and exploration? Uh, you know, you'd hope so, but... Um, <laughs> I, I guess we'll see. Uh, uh, I see the American public, though, as uh, being sort of amnesiac. Uh, you know, they barely remember what happened like six months ago. Uh, and so the notion that one movie is going to change, you know, it's like, is it did gravity, you know, to get everybody worried about orbital debris? You know, no. Uh, they don't even remember the movie. Um, they remember, uh, the, you know, maybe the ending. <laughs> so I wouldn't. 
I would not, you know, what you need to see is a whole bunch of movies, like a craze for it. Like if, if space movies became something like Westerns were, you know, uh, then that you can say, okay, there's a cultural movement going on in the country. But if it's just an adventure movie, okay, this one happened to be set on Mars, Robinson Crusoe was set on a deserted island, uh, you know, and the next movie is set at the bottom of the, the submarine, then you say, yeah, it's just, you know, people liking isolation movies instead. It's not a genuine movement. If every movie next year is set on Mars, then okay, then something bigger is going on. Dan, we, we, we can but dream. <laughs> yes. Well, there's always that, right? That extra. I mean, it's it's an amazing dream. It's been there since Werner von Braun and that gang sort of brought it over to the U.S. It's sort of intact from their vision from the 1950s. Uh, it's kind of remarkable that that's true. Um, you know, it's 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 there. It's not going away. We'll get to it someday. <laughs> I, I mean, I think as well, you know, when, when, when we see these kind of so realistic, you know, and, and now quality pictures from Mars, do you know what I mean? It's, it's kind of, from my point of view, it's kind of hard to think we should right. do that, you know? You'd think so. I mean, like when I worked it for uh, another newspaper uh, here, our biggest selling uh, issues were, you know, Mars Rover ones. People love it. Uh, but I think it's just a spectacle for them. They, I don't think that you say to them, okay, uh, you loved your, those pictures from Mars, from the Mars rovers, now pony up for a lander. I don't think they reach for their wallet right away. I think mm -hmm. they are just, you know, they're sending more pictures. <laughs> <laughs> Dan, honestly, it's lovely having you on. I know you're kind of busy there. I can hear you in the background, everything going on. Thank you so much for coming on and just in line with, you know, of kind of the, the politics and, you know, the kind of, all the, the mire that it's kind of swimming in at the moment. <laughs> Dan, thank you so much. All right. You bet. There you go. Dan, thank you so much. Like I say, it was just fascinating. You could spend all day just kind of digging into them kind of little indices and just finding out, you know what I mean, the, 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 the real truth behind it. You know what I mean? Dan, thank you so much. So before the main fiction, a couple of little things. Hello, Sophonauts. Hello, followers of Far-Fetched Fables. And hello, children of the night. I'm here to tell you why I personally became a patron of the District of Wonders. I'm a long-time listener and really believe in the community that's grown here and the content that's available. There are very few places where you can get some of the best genre fiction for free, every week, consistently. If you feel like I do, please open your browser, open your smartphone, and go to Patreon. Check out the giving levels and choose something that's right for you. Remember, we each give a little, but as a community... We give a lot. Thanks. Now that was Seth Williams, a listener to the show, a listener to all the shows, and now starting out his little life there as a narrator as well, trying to get up on the scale. But I just wanted to play it, and I'm going to start trying to, you know, find people who are kind of supporting the District of Wonders, you know, that ne our net, that network, our network there on Patreon. Do you know, it's just, it's a, it's a nice, honest thing to do. You know what I mean? You've been listening to the show. You know what I mean? Everyone you kind of I speak to loves, you know, what we're doing there. It's kind of helped out. Now, the good news is we hit our goal. Now, our goal was to kind of the first kind of goal on Patreon. And I've never, you know, I don't actually know. Fingers crossed it's all right. You know, this kind of whole Patreon setup. It seems all right. You know what I mean? But I haven't had any kind of fundings in the wallet so to speak but it we hit our first goal so there's been some people there have kind of donated and they're going to donate each month 
and we're going to keep the, that is just an amazing thing man do you know what I mean I had tears in my eyes when it kind of hit that first goal and the first goal was I think 350 do you know what I mean and it was just dollars toy money and it was just like yes man do you know what I mean what a sigh of relief just to make sure it's running but do you know what I mean it's not to stop you it's going over there if you're kind of listening to this show and listening to the other shows and Honestly, man, a couple of quid, you know what I mean? I had a, f- a friend, actually, one of the listeners, and who's kind of been there for years, you know what I mean? And he's just his little comment back, you know, he, he pledged and he says, first pint of the month, Tony, donate to you, do you know what I mean? And it was just like, that was it, that's all it is. It's like a pint, just, you know what I mean, to keep it going. And if everyone did that, man, we would be just fantastic. We would be sailing, to be quite honest. So do the, the right thing, and... Well, I might as well mention this now because I've mentioned it sometime, but we Oxygen Technology is not going to be supporting work next year. And I've got to say a big thank you to Clive and Diane for kind of just stepping up to the mark, you know, and kind of helping out 2015 and, you know, for SofaCon as well. They've been fantastic, you know what I mean? They just put that kind of bedrock underneath with just to make sure. So we're on our own, do you know what I mean? That's the kind of fundamental thing of it in 2016. This is it, man. It's like, it's it's scary as anything, to be quite honest. When you've got, you know, we've got so many people listening to the show. And, you know, so many people listen to all the shows, man. It's just in the thousands and thousands and thousands. You know what I mean? If just, you know, a few kind of, right, all right, it's about time I did. Do you know what I mean? It's about time I coughed up. Two ninety nine a fiver, you know. I've seen a fiver. These are gay American time money. It would be just fantastic, man. Just you know, what I mean, do the right thing and support her. And I've had a couple who mentioned, you know, what I mean? oh, today I'm you know donating like the, the old way, like the kind of our normal kind of monthly donations. Please keep them there because, like I said, I'm I'm not worried about Patreon. It looks it all seems kind of you know flashing nice and everything seems to work there. Just. If them kind of went, you know what I mean, then it was just, we'd be crash and burn, do you know what I mean? So if you kind of are donating the, the old style way, Bonzi, please keep them there, you know what I mean? This is for people that's kind of come along and, you know, just starting out or have been there for a while. Oh, come on, man. Been there for a while. So, yes, there you go. Little, um, we're on our own now. Scary times. We've got to kind of look after ourselves, definitely. So, the main fiction, and it is... Karma of the Cloud Kings by Brian Trent. Now, like I say, this story was published in Analog Magazine as well. So, you know what I mean? You're getting it in there. You're getting it in these two magazines. It's just, you know what I mean? They are the pinnacle, man. Do you know what I mean? It's kind of, they've been around so long. But if you can get it in there, you can kind of write. I'll give you a little heads up about Brian. I can call him David there. Brian is a 2013 winner in the Writers of the Future contest for his story, War Hero. His work has appeared in Analog, Daily Science Fiction, Apex, winning the 2000 Story of the Year, Reader's Poll, Clark's World, Escape Pods, Cosmos, Strange Horizons, Galaxies, Cross Genres, The Mammoth Book of Diesel Punk, I didn't even know it was Diesel Punk, and much more. He lives in Connecticut, where he works as a writer and a screenwriter. Do you know what I mean? Just got the chops there, man. Go on there, Brian. Story is narrated by Bill Patterson. Bill Patterson is the author of the computer-aided design software book and wrote a column for MicroStation Manager magazine for three years. He's been published in Journal Stone SF Anthology, 90 Minutes to Live, as well as Mutation Press S 
science fiction anthology Rocket Science in 2012. He was nominated for a British Science Fiction Award for the non-fiction category in 2012. His narration work has been featured in Why Writers, Another Dimension. He is the co-leader of both the Princeton Writing Group and the Central NJ Region of National Novel Writing Month. He and his wife of 32 years, Barbara, live with their two sons in central New Jersey. I just want to give a shout out as well to, to Bill as well. Just Bill's brother, John Patterson, who just died recently. John was, he was kind of essential to the kind of alert in the airline industry of the dangers of solar flares, all this kind of high altitude radiation. And apparently he was instrumental in incorporating the kind of space weather monitors to all the major operation centers in the past 15 years. I can see it. Bill, what can I say? Do you know what I mean? Our thoughts are with your brother. Do you know what I mean? It's just uh, hard times, sir, hard times. But our love is there for him. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present Karma Among the Cloud Kings by Brian Trent. 50,000 feet above Tempest's high clouds, Antareg Valheth invites me to sit beside him in the lobby of the Lindorm refueling station. It's a desolate, littered expanse of tables, party streamers, and plastic people with unceasingly flapping jaws. Uh, what, what are they doing? I whisper, sweating despite the room's merciless air conditioning. Eating, Antarag winks, talking. His pitted skin stretches like a weather-beaten tarp across a knobby skeleton and skull of aquiline protrusions. The plastic people have no food that I can see. One of them leaps up from his chair, arms raised in silent declaration, while others applaud with rubbery hands. Discolored mouths swing open and shut on cheap hinges. Antarag grins at me with pained, frank interest. I wonder when the last time he's had a real flesh-and-blood female visitor up here with him. He knows I'm from Bellcap 51. He knows we're all giants here, with our shaved heads, monastic robes, and vows of celibacy. Still, my eyes dart nervously to his holstered pistol. I ask, What are they eating? He taps his forearm gauntlet. Menu options unfurl in neon petals. Oh, that one's eating steak and potato pancakes, he says, pointing to one guest whose plastic body appears to have been assembled Frankenstein-style from at least six different modular components. Those two girls are eating sushi. Emotions to a pair of androgynous mannequins who are miming the use of chopsticks, bringing invisible morsels to their skeleton jaws. We've got Blehabi caviar, fresh raspberries, Osirian felsacks, comet cakes, beef stroganoff, flame roasted marrow. Name it, I've got it. Ten million fruits from across the galaxy. Antarag lent me a spare visor. I fitted over my eyes and ears. The plastic people disappear, and now I see them as they see each other, a revelry of beautiful men and women. The men are square-jawed and chiseled. The women are elegant and buxom. My eyes stray to the jewelry sparking at their throats and fingers. Thudding music weaves among the sudden babble of voices. A pretty girl like you, Prima, should have jewelry like that, Antarag says, following my stare. He has changed, too. The sickly-looking ladder control man is now a muscular brute in a diamond-studded suit. No longer balding, his scalp has grown a lustrous mane like a cobra's hood. I lift the visor. The beautiful people vanish back into plastic monstrosities. One falls out of its chair. 
The others erupt into silent apoplexies of laughter, clutching their plastic bellies, tilting their heads back like a nightmare of howling skeletons. Uh, we, we don't wear jewelry, I say, feeling dampness hatch across my shaved scalp. And you don't eat meat, right? He presses me, rotating his chair, legs splayed in a cruel invite. No, we don't eat meat. We, we don't eat physical food at all. He nods, eyes prowling over my shapeless robe as if he can see straight to my lean, brown, 22-year-old body. No food, huh? Well, where do you get your sustenance from? Uh, the sun. Photosynthesis? Shouldn't your skin be green then? I make the green receptors flash into visibility on my face and hands. Each one displays itself in radiant Sanskrit. Each curve and loop signifies a giant value. Peace. Nonviolence. Knowledge. Truth. His grin widens a millimeter. Do those things appear all over your body, Prima? Ignoring this welcome lechery, I say, Their real bodies are in orbit, waiting for their ships to refuel. Would they not prefer local food, then? Illusion is more satisfying, girl. But, but even if it looks like real food, how do you convince them that it has taste and substance? Antarag draws his arm around my shoulders, wires dangling like weeds off his neurocast suit. Most of it is just vibration, he says proudly. The neurocast suit vibrates at key frequencies along the jawline. It creates whatever parameters of resistance a meal should have. The shrimp is crisp, the steak rare. The fell sack pops between your teeth. But, but the taste of the food. Are you craving something? You are, aren't you? His fingers tickle the gauntlet's hollow display. How about glass noodles? That's an ancient Buddhist delight, you know. We're Jains, not Buddhists. You're a flesh-and-blood woman with a real body beneath that robe, he counters. Put on one of those suits and you can try anything you like, any sensory delight, without breaking your damn vows. And not just food. <laughs> Antarag points to a dusty sofa where two grinning mannequins thrust and grind against each other, a mirthless war of attrition that has produced the stress fractures ob observed on many a pelvis here. I don't understand how you all hang out at Bellcap 51, guys and gals together, and nobody does anything. It's one of our oaths, I explain, drinking in the view of this nightmarish party. I think, does this man have any oaths whatsoever? What are his values? A third voice intrudes into our conversation. I had almost forgotten that Indrani had accompanied me up the space elevator. She's Bellcap 51's matronly, middle-aged supervisor and my direct commanding officer. Entourage? She asks. If Prima were to wear your visor, would she look like you to the guests? The latter controlman barely acknowledges the older woman's presence. His eyes are locked on me. Yes. Everyone here can be anything they want, even me. Indrani's eyes shimmer purposefully in her aged face. Barring someone's karma. Interesting. Don't you agree, Prima? Antarag rubs his chin thoughtfully. As I recall, one of your sacred oaths is to always tell the truth. Uh -huh, and to never tell a lie, I correct him, motioning for his visor. May I? He absently hands me his visor. I'd like to ask you something, Prima, and I expect you to tell me the truth. The tone in his voice tells me, um, something's wrong. I stiffen, realizing too late 
that he's known all along that he's been playing us, drawing us into a comfortable web. I lick my dry lips and say as calmly as my galloping heart will allow, Yes? Yes? He raises an eyebrow and his pitted skin flushes a deep scarlet. It's like looking at raw meat. Why did you come up here today, Prima? What's the real reason you people stopped by for a visit? And just then, the security alarm goes off. We had fled a paradise planet to come to Tempest. Two years ago, I was a 20-year-old girl tending the gardens of a giant village on Midsummer's Dream. Now I toiled in a hydrogen-collecting station among the clouds of a bitter, lonely world. Tempest is Shakespeare's system's only gas giant. It supplies planets, moons, and space stations with fuel. Its clouds are dotted with amno-processing stations, the bell caps, tethered like flowers along the metal vines that trail off Lindorm refueling station, 50,000 feet above us. My job on Midsummer's Dream? Grow vegetables. My job on Tempest? Climb into a tight-fitting biosuit and walk vertically along the bell cap spires to keep them clean of debris. Tempest's atmosphere is littered with scraps of bygone processor stations built in haste by colonists who didn't appreciate what relentless winds could do to man's handiwork. Each spire is a three-kilometer-long lance through Tempest's cobalt-hued clouds. Each collects planetary hydrogen day and night, pumping the gas straight up to Lindorm Refueling Station, where ships from across the solar system come to refuel, a gas pump for a spacefaring society. Walking the spires, cleaning them of constant debris flurries is dangerous work. It would be easier to take the lift. And this is why we never take the lift, Komal explained over my headset the day before I met Antarag Velheth and his party of plastic people. I looked to his boots, gaping at the easy way he balanced on only one foot. The other paused mid-stride, just inches from a slug clinging to the spire like an oversized raspberry. It's one thing to know that our magnifiber boots form a molecular bond with the spire. It's quite another to be this sure-footed while walking it. Glowing debris whip through the air like confetti, bursting as they touch the electrified bristles which line the spire like thorns on a rose stem. Think of all the slugs crushed by the lift before we arrived, Kamal explained, his bearded mouth frowning behind his faceplate. He bent to cradle the specimen in his hands. It flattened its rubbery body in fear and... Komal petted its striated flank, reassuringly saying, Thousands, maybe millions of undocumented murders. They're safe now that we're here. No harm to any living thing. That was the giant oath of Ahimsa. I forgive all living beings, whispered Komal, uttering our sacred prayer. And may all living beings forgive me. All living beings are my friends. I have malice to none. I have boom! shockwave twisted me, and for an instant I thought my boots had lost contact with the spire. I screamed and fell forward onto the vertical spire, striking my hands out at the last second so that my glove, arms, and knees would bond with the nanosteel. My stomach almost emptied the water I had swallowed an hour ago. In that moment, I imagined the report that would reach my old friends on Midsummer's Dream. Prima Gaswani, 22, fell thousands of feet to her death. Tempest's giants made her walk outside in a storm out of fear of stepping on a slug. Komal finally tossed the specimen into the wind. It snapped open its frills and, like an umbrella, caught an updraft to vanish in the debris-strewn clouds. Only then did he turn his sensitive eyes on me, 
His was a worn, deeply lined countenance set in his bushy beard. Are you all right, Prima? I harnessed my anger. Yes, Kamal. Nice of you to notice that I almost... Boom! As I lay glued to the nano-steel, I turned my head south. An immense debris strand had become coiled around the end of the spire. Blind luck, really, that it had missed the electrified bristles. It made me think of the ancient custom of tying a string around one's finger to never forget. Its two ends undulated like a pair of waving arms, unfolding and twisting in mindless, wind-driven merriment. I rose carefully to my feet. The fiery ribbon danced, its arms snapping in bullwhip gyrations with enough kinetic energy to... Boom! It looks alive, doesn't it? Kamal asked behind me. A little, I admitted, steadying my feet. The ribbon's contortion suggested the jiva of life. But I knew, everyone knew, that tempest pollution was ajiva, non-living, artificial matter. The only living creatures on Tempest were slugs, and they were immune to the electrified bristles, since no harm was being perpetrated. Malice towards none. Across three kilometers, Supervising Officer Indrani spoke through my helmet radio. Prima, Ladar is showing a large piece of debris stuck on the spine. I'm looking right at it, I replied. I shall remove it. Good. A hesitation. Are you okay, Prima? We heard you cry out and... I almost fell. A long pause. Finally, Indrani found her voice and said, It wasn't your karma to fall. Please be careful. Ladar measures this scrap at six meters. That could whip you off the spire if you're reckless. I unclipped the extendable claw hand from my tool belt and advanced on the dancing red strand. I am never reckless, Indrani. Proceeding now to remove the... A second piece of debris smashed into me from behind, snagged around my waist and tore me off the spire into the endless blue. Kamal was sixty years old, and he rarely did anything to challenge that fact, but as I tumbled off the spire into the clouds, he must have found a reserve of youthful reflex. His hand clamped around my ankle. I screamed again, dangling like a caught fish. The claw hand dropped, bounced off the spire, and spun into the cobalt troposphere below me. Kamal, Struggled to lower me to the spire, my suit's magnifibers latched on and secured me once more. Heart-pounding, I stared at what had struck me, another long strand of debris, this one a brilliant sapphire blue. It seemed to hover in the storm, weaving in and out of the wind like a stubborn eel fighting an ocean's undertow. Kowal! I shouted. Are you seeing this? At that moment, the scarlet ribbon unraveled from its perch. Despite the way it had nodded, it untangled itself and flew down towards the blue one. Jiva! cried Komal. The strands intertwined, red, blue, melted into one another to achieve a, a fierce, throbbing violet. They braided like two phosphorescent serpents wrapping around each other. The bonding shivered in the wind, undulating to keep position and avoid being driven off into the gulf of the sky. Then... Before our astonished eyes, the double strand began to climb through the storm. It threaded in and out of the wind, and once more adopted a knotted perch at the spire's end. It wrapped itself securely around the spire like a sentient ribbon preparing itself into a bow. Jiva, I whispered in agreement. The debris was alive. What happened out there? Indrani demanded once we had returned to the bell cap. She folded her arms like a scornful schoolteacher, her brown face drawn in sharp lines and plateaus, 
black hair buzzed into a fuzzy stubble like little mag fibers of their own. The entire giant occupancy of Bellcap 51 sported the same haircut, genderless solidarity through depilation. We were still stripping off our biosuits, and it was bad form for Androni to intrude upon our half-naked state, especially with Colmall there. It wasn't the antiquated giant prohibition about men and women seeing each other naked that bothered me, but the urgency in her voice, which suggested high emotion, which upset tranquility, which violated a parigraha, the oath of detachment from physical concerns, which reminded me of my own terror out there on the spire. I could still taste the bitter tang of adrenaline in the back of my throat. Rather than cover up his partial nudity, though, Kamal dressed without haste. True aparigraha was not to hide from anything. Buddhists were fond of the parable where two monks encounter the name of Buddha scrawled in the dirt, and while one tries to avoid stepping on his name, the other trudges right over it, footprint marring the word as he goes. Why? Because attachment to word is still attachment. The two strands combined, I said, donning my standard white monastic garment. You were reckless, Indrani declared. You weren't watching your surroundings. I was watching, I insisted. You could have died, Prima. Then I guess that would have been my karma, I snapped. Indrani's scowl deepened until her face looked like an iron mask bolted over with high pressure. You didn't complete your mission. You left two large pieces of debris out there on the spire. They might clog the filter. They are not debris, I countered. They are jiva. My superior officer sighed. The debris are polyresin fragments left over from the last generation of processing stations. She was practically quoting verbatim from Lindorm's technical manual. She was also upset, I could tell, because she had become more animated and careless in her choice of words when gripped by high emotion. If unattended, they'll clog up the filters. Our job is to keep the spires running efficiently. Indrani turned her displeasure on Komal. Prima's not alone in failing her duties. You too turned your back on those strands. Why? Our bearded companion offered no reaction to her question. Without his suit helmet, Komal looked like a figure of sandstone, his messy tangle of gray beard burying the lower half of his face. Giants do not lie. Lying is a terrible crime, attracting negative karma around the soul. But neither are we compelled to incriminate ourselves. Silence has many uses. Indrani seemed to glide over to the intercom. Jita, Parul, suit up and proceed to the airlock. Those strands are alive, Komal said finally. They are not mere pollution. We have been lied to. Indrani released the intercom button and shook her head. They are pieces of string in the wind. They are scraps of older stations, built in haste by colonists who didn't appreciate how strong Tempest storms could be. Everyone knows that. The two strands willfully went after each other. Coincidence, the wind drove them together. They combined for a purpose, he insisted. Your belly lint also combines. Are they jiva too? Komal regarded her stolidly. Belly lint contains bacteria, so yes, jiva is present, and you should know better. One of the walls slid open, and Jita and Parul entered the chamber. Jita was as old as Komal. I remembered that on Midsummer Night's Dream they had been married before a small community decided on total commitment to giant vows. I remember them walking together, hand in hand, in the grassy, sunlit fields of that vibrant world. Now they stood beside each other without emotion, a pair of mahogany chess pieces which, as the universe often forgets, was an Indian invention. Parul was the only non-Indian among us. 
a blue-skinned giant immigrant from the nearby world of Winter's Tale, a mean distance of just 700 million miles away. Be at peace, Parul said, sensing the tension. What has happened? Kamal and Prima disobeyed an order, Indrani explained. She touched the wall and it dissolved into a viewscreen. The spire appeared, coiled by the purple twine, whipping and snapping in the storm. Proceed with the removal, she said. They suited up and went through the airlock, claw hands jingling at their belts. Indrani began to climb into the dining module. Kamal, I want you on LADAR duty. Prima, follow me. I complied. It was time to eat sunlight. I recalled the nastiness, the hypocrisy, of trying to reconcile the giant principle of Ahimsa, doing no harm to any living thing, with the biological necessity of consuming physical food. To clamp one's teeth down on a living creature, tearing and chewing, swallowing it in a froth of saliva, to drop a once-living thing into the acid pit of the stomach, to feel the extra foreign weight inside my belly, a bitter mockery of growing a child in the womb, to willfully steal jiva, and in doing so, drive oneself further from salvation with each bite. I remember the great hunts on Midsummer's Dream, the orgiastic revelry of an entire village melting into savagery, the giant children with the meat stuck in their teeth. It was the reason we had fled Midsummer's Dream. Midsummerians were a throwback culture eschewing most modern technologies. They lived in simple farming villages. We had believed it to be a good place for us to form our community away from persecution. We had been wrong. Midsummer's Dream is a throwback world, yes, but to rampant bacchanalias, bloody hunts, and primitivism, at first they were welcoming to us. Slowly the cruel whispers began, the pranks and abuses, the slain animals left on our doorstep or strung up in my garden. But it was the great hunt that proved the final straw, a gruesome twice-per-year holiday on which mid-Sumerians gathered in the woods and hills with their musical instruments and most depraved appetites. They would light huge bonfires. They would round up animals of all breeds, whipping them into a desperate stampede and drive them through a gauntlet of human bodies while stabbing, tearing, biting, and devouring them. As giants, we could not participate in the horror. Two years ago, our door shut against one of these grim bacchanalias. We woke to discover that four of our youngest children had done what children do best, snuck out of their homes in a quiet conspiracy to spy on the secret rituals from a hilltop, except they hadn't stayed on the hilltop. Maybe it had been the music which lured them down to the festivities. Maybe a dare to get closer and closer. Maybe something worse, a primeval impulse incited by the drums and chants and smell of blood in the air. I had been the one to find them the next morning with meat in their teeth and blood on their hands, visceral trophies hanging around their necks, animal eyes and teeth and paws strung through with tendons like garlands from hell. After that night of horror, we had fled Midsummer's dream. We had retreated to the Orbital Giant Temple Clinic, where we submitted to the bioengineering necessary to make us complete giants, the final physical step to true commitment. We became autotrophs. In the dining module atop the bell cap, Indrani and I climbed into a pair of glowing coffers to absorb a raw solar meal. The blue light of Shakespeare, largest star for 200 light years, bathed a system of seven planets in a wash of energy that provided our daily nutrients. The light came round us like hot wax as I waited for Indrani's skating review of my spire walk. Less than a minute into feeding, she provided it. You failed out there today, she said, her eyes closed as she soaked up the energy. Her chloroplast flushed green across her face, hands, and neck, displaying giant values. 
You are not there, Indrani, and Komal agrees with me. Komal is not the commanding officer of Belcaf 51. If we fail our duty here, we shall be homeless once more. What world will take us next? What world is so ideally suited to the cleansing of karma? I am sorry, I grunted. You disobeyed my orders. If that debris interrupts the hydrogen harvest, Lindorm will want to know why. If they ask, I will have to tell them the truth. I must have made my resentment audible because Indrani's eyes snapped open to regard me with studious disapproval. I will have to, she repeated. As giants, we have sworn an oath to never tell a lie. We do not break our oath. Even if it means that I... Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. I alone would be expelled, I demanded searching her face for any sign of the woman I had known on Midsummer for the first 20 years of my life. The blue light gave her a truly androgynous appearance, scorching away any feminine aspects. A brief memory arose, and Drani and I, crawling through the grass to approach a jade butterfly. I remembered her smile then, remembered how she would tuck me in each night with a hug and a kiss. The intercom rang a single, chime-like note. What is it, Komal? Indrani asked. Have Jita and Parul completed the mission? Call up external view of Spire 4, he said. Indrani touched the wall. We were suddenly looking out at Jita and Parul. They were sitting vertically on the spire, a startling picture of two human beings on the edge of karmic oblivion. A huge purple flower had blossomed out of the termination point. It had grown out of the double strand and was unfurling ghostly, semi-transparent petals, even as we watched. Jiva, Komal insisted. From the screen, our co-workers chanted in unison, Jiva, it is Jiva. Within the blossoming creature, new structures were forming before our eyes. I gasped as the quivering petals began to split and sprout, bizarre cilia-like tendrils shivering into existence from the flower's edges. The cilia grew before our eyes and began to whip into the wind, as if trying to produce sonic booms, but lacking the length at least for now, to succeed. I thought, it is trying to communicate. I turned to Indrani in triumph. The debris is alive! 
Well, we were told, A lie, I interrupted. Indrani pulled herself out of the coffer and dropped to her knees before the screen. Her eyes were wet. The ride up the ladder took eight hours, during which Tempest's atmosphere made a full super-rotation of the planet. Kamal, Indrani, and I rode the elevator together. The rest of our group stayed behind to study the flower. Jita supplied us with regular updates by radio, and by the sixth hour she had a significant update indeed. A third fragment of debris, also blue, had tried to join the purple flower, but it brushed up against the spire bristles and was fried. It now hung like a burnt prayer flag, a dead thing, flapping in the wind. Deactivate the bristles, Indrani ordered, and she fixed us with a solemn, quietly suffering expression. What are they? Kamal sat lotus-style in the lift's corner, gazing thoughtfully at the on-wall image of the exotic organism. A life form, he said flatly. I added, the gametes of a developing organism, maybe. Reproduction through broadcast vision. Over the radio, Jita added, and it's still developing. We can see what looks like the start of a neocortical column, and a rim of parallel structures are reacting to the sunlight as the clouds pass by. I believe there are clusters of photoreceptor cells. Eyes? Indrani asked helplessly. Primitive eyes, yes. It is clearly waiting for more debris, I insisted. It is even calling to the other pieces. And I told her about the sonic booms. My superior officer settled into a pained, contemplative meditation, while I allowed myself a tiny pleasure, my newfound sense of purpose. When had I ever been a decider in my life? I continued, The debris coalesces into a gestalt organism, Instead of needing a sperm and an egg, it, it develops out of this fragmentary material, this material that we've been systematically destroying and disposing of. And I thought, what are the parents? Was there some bizarre garden of alien flowers down there on the tempestian surface, thrusting stamens out into the wind to shake loose this bioluminescent pollen? But that was impossible. Planetary LADAR, ultrasonics, and Doppler would have pinged something back that large. I turned to Komal. You, you suspected this all along. He gave me an inscrutable look from the floor. I've been thinking about it ever since we arrived two years ago. I didn't believe the polyresin explanation. Indrani had been breathing heavily. Panic squirmed in her neck. We'd broken the first vow, the law of Amhiza. We did not know, I protested. But she only repeated in her crystalline voice, Ignorance does not excuse the damage we have done. We went from one great hunt to another. I thought of the giant holy words. I forgive all living things. May all living things forgive us. All living beings are our friends. We have malice towards none. For two years we have been collecting and destroying the debris in Tempest's atmosphere. For thirty years before that, others had done the same. We have been interfering with the life cycle of an indigenous species. Something on Tempest is trying to breed, I repeated, and someone wants to prevent that from happening. Why? Komal shook his head. I think they are already extinct. The debris are all that remain of them, like the pollen of a long-deceased flower. Whatever produced them is dead. And that is why we must confront our employers, I declared, snapping up in the elevator shutter. The skies outside were black. We were seventy miles up now in the highest reaches of Tempest's atmosphere. My bones felt as light as young bamboo. We shall find out what's happening here, I said. We'll put a stop to it once and... F I've caught my fellow Jine's expression in the glass. What? 
I asked, confused. Prima, how will confronting our employers help? Indrani asked, and Komal added, Exactly. What do you think of this confrontation will accomplish? I stared disbelieving at them. It'll stop the cycle of evil. But he only said, Great secrets have been covered by great expense and effort. Only great power can change that. And what power do we have? We have abandoned the horror of power when we left Midsummer. Then why the hell are we climbing the ladder? I demanded. He winced at my vulgarity. It was your suggestion. And Indrani added, You were bent on riding the ladder, Prima. We did not want you doing it alone. I suggested it because we needed to do something. Bellcap 51 is one of 80 different processing stations. We need to go to the source, I hesitated. If you disagreed with this course of action, why let me go at all? Let you go? Gomal frowned, and he and Indrani exchanged a look. How could we stop you? All living things must go their own way. You decided on this course of action. I shouted, but I'm only a kid. You're an adult, Indrani chastised. We attempted to convince you that this was the wrong course of action. I'd explained that you were disobeying another order of mine. You disagreed with our reasoning. Your reasons, I countered hotly, were for us to do nothing. You did not even think to deactivate the bristles until that third ribbon was murdered. You have not decided anything. We decided to watch the flower grow, she said. See what it becomes to watch the flower grow. My outrage boiled up and over the rigid walls of my giant training. And now that it was out, uncaged and unchained, I clearly understood why the rest of the universe laughed at us. Why we were so readily the butt of jokes. How ineffectual we were, even in the face of genocide. I even understood the perverse pleasure of Midsummerians must have enjoyed, seeing our youngest members falling straight down the evolutionary ladder with them into the barbarism they argued was the natural state of mankind. After all, wasn't it barbarism and audacity that propelled humanity to the stars? What audacity had we ever shown? We hadn't fought for the living creatures of Midsummer's dream. We had abandoned them, their planet, and fled into the clouds. Indrani regarded me with piteous, tortured eyes. The latter control man is named Antarag Velheth. He is the one you will be dealing with. My stomach sank. Who I will be dealing with? That is your decision, Indrani hesitated. Perhaps it is your karma to do this, Prima. How do we distinguish karma from pure foolishness? Following one's karma opens the right path. What do I say to him? What do you want of him? To stop killing the debris, to find out why this policy of murder was first enacted. Then it seems, Kamal, said Rising, that you do know what to say. Follow your karma, honor your oaths. It's all we have left, Prima. The elevator car closed in on the Lindorm refueling station. Ladder controlman Antar Agvel Heth did not greet us at the airlock. He did not greet us in the hallway leading to the controller room. It was only when we entered the heart of his domain that he swiveled around his chair to offer a brisk, welcoming salute. He was surrounded by a macabre dance of plastic people. Ships refueling in tempest orbit perch carefully above the station to receive their hydrogen. That period of refueling takes time. You don't cross hundreds of millions of miles for a quick drink at the watering hole. You fill your tanks to bursting. Tempest has multiple ships in orbit at any time, guzzling away from the latter's transatmospheric tethers. That means that the crews have time to kill, time to socialize, 
to meet and greet the visitors from other worlds. The thing about Tempest, however, is that it's dangerous to take a shuttle down to the ladder control station for a multi-world shindig. The gravity well itself would burn up a lot of the fuel, but that's the least concern. There are storms here that are older than human civilization, storms which, back when humankind was first learning to press wisdom into clay tablets on the birth world, were already fomenting here on Tempest, gathering moisture and energy, churning in maelstroms now amber with the wrath of millennia. We had names for these storms. They were Tempest's curious celebrities, and to enter the planet's atmosphere was like feeding oneself to terrible alien gods. The safer route was to neurocast into remote-controlled fake bodies to pass the long hours. Antarag rushed over to us, wires dangling from his head. He vigorously shook our hands in turn. What occasion is this? Bellcat 51 honors me with a visit? Come in, come in. The never-ending party's in full swing. Indrani and Komal bowed, but made no effort to accept his invitation. We had met Antarag two years ago. Upon our immigration from Midsummer's Dream to accept jobs manning Bellcap 51. He had seemed a sweaty, ragged shell of a man then. The phrase strung out had occurred to me, and now I saw this was truer than I realized. He was an emaciated thing, unhealthy and unshaven, unshowered and unkempt. It was difficult to concentrate on him, however, with the nightmare party of plastic people behind him. Antareg saw my fascination. Primo, was it? Here, try this. He handed me a weighty visor. This will let you see and hear what they do. He noticed Indrani and Komal's reluctance to get too close. Strangely, this seemed to amuse rather than offend him. You guys don't mind if Prima has a look, do you? We each make our own decisions, Indrani stated evenly. The mannequins were terrible creations. They reminded me of holographic cutaways I had seen of the human body. Jaws flapped, arms waved, bodies waltzed drunkenly and strolled with each other. Rubbery fingers entwined as couples lurched off to private corners. What? What are they doing? I gasped. Antarag looked immensely pleased. Eating? Talking. What are they eating? Chuckling, he rattled off a lengthy list of food stuff. Steak and potato pancakes, sundaes, raspberry tarts, a litany of meat and dairy meals. Things stolen from other bodies. Except in this case, the foods weren't real. Nothing was being stolen. Except life, I thought. The lives of those creatures on Tempest. Indrani finally piped up from the doorway. Antarag, if Prima were to wear your visor, would she look like you to the guest? The control man didn't look away from me. I blushed under his hot stare. Yes. Everyone here can be anything they want. Even me. Indrani nodded. Borrowing someone's karma. Interesting. Don't you agree, Prima? She looked expectantly at me, and I suddenly understood. Karma opens the right path. Antarag rubbed his chin thoughtfully. As I recall, Prima, one of your sacred oaths is to always tell the truth. To never tell a lie, I corrected him, and I motioned for his own visor. May I? He handed me the visor. I'd like to ask you something, Prima, and I expect you will tell me the truth. Yes? Why did you come up here today? What's the real reason your people stopped by for a visit? And just then the security alarm went off. Antarag Velheth leaps up, cursing, wires trailing, and dashes down the hall to where the alarm was triggered. His pistol was in his hand, and I almost screamed, thinking of Komal, my grandfather, in danger. 
Now's your chance, Andrani whispers, looking stricken. Quickly, Prima. I affix the heavy visor to my face. I become Antarag. Not the real Antarag, of course, but his idealized avatar, the bulging, muscular specimen of crude masculinity from a high-gravity planet. The plastic people are replaced once more by beautiful illusions. When I speak through the headset microphone, it is not my voice, nor his, but a gruff baritone from his preferred playlists. How are you enjoying yourselves? I ask them. The crowd barely hears me. Only the nearest man, Captain Jason Finch of Wintersdale, according to the ID bubble floating near his head, stirs drunkenly a glass of liquor in one hand and a sultry, supple female clinging to neck. Everything's great, Antarag, as usual. Good, I hesitate. Ever visit the bellcaps? He squints at me. The bellcaps? At this, the girl around his neck jerks to attention. Oh, yes. Let's hear more gossip. I love that last story you told me about Bellcap 17. How can it be that none of them know Fenton is sleeping with Jezebel and Singnaga? I mean, they're sisters. Don't they ever talk? I don't know, I say truthfully. Actually, I was wondering if there was any gossip about Bellcap 51. You mean the freaks? Captain Finch asks. The one's eyes brighten. Yes, yes, the freaks of 51. She laughs wickedly and grabs a fistful of grapes from a silver platter. I try not to think about her rubbery framework pawing at the empty air. Finch shrugs. What about them? They're like monks or something, aren't they? My brain scrambles to respond. Well, um, well, they're down there disposing of all that debris, and uh, they don't—they don't even know what the debris is. I'm gambling, and my heart stops as I behold their puzzled expressions. I've been counting on the idea that they knew about the debris. Someone here must know. And her egg, the captain starts. What do you think they'd do if we told them? Pray hard in our direction? Told them what? About the jellies, the woman shouts. They talk about it on the bridge sometimes. Were they really that dangerous? Captain Finch strokes her hair absently. Took 50 years and an entire armada to subdue them. So, yeah, they're a pretty fucking dangerous, Darlene. Treading carefully, even as my stomach knots, I try a further prompt. Did you see those jellies for yourself, Finch? He gives me a sharper, more perplexed look. What are you talking about? Are you drunk? Truly drunk? You're hoarding the real stuff down there in your prison? I am not drunk. Then you know perfectly well we killed them together, my friend. Oh, I say, and then quickly, truthfully add, I'd like to hear you tell the story. I'm guessing Darlene would as well. He sits straighter in his chair, looking uncomfortable. Antarag and I were part of an armada, Darlene. We didn't have an armada at first. It started with exploratory ships dropping into orbit when we first got into this system. Uh, those early captains must have shit themselves when they saw how many jellies were floating in Tempest's atmosphere. There were millions, huge floating gas bags. And you bought them, the woman giggles. Bought them like balloons! The man hesitates. The grim intensity on his face is no illusion, and I think how the neurocast transmitter must be accurately portraying his real face from whichever ship his body is in. No, he mutters. Not as easy as popping balloons. When the first ships arrived, there was no fighting because the jellies were merely curious about us. They were intelligent, I cry. Fucking brilliant. And when they realized our intention was to take the planet's hydrogen... They began a systematic opposition, started harassing the building crews, so we took to building in space where the jellies couldn't get at us. 
But once we eased the bell caps into place, the jellies would dismantle them, pried them apart at the seams, and threw them down to the planetary surface. He motions for something more to drink. I can't get him a new drink. I don't have Antarag's hollow display menu gauntlet. A drink, Finch demands. Antarag! Thinking fast, I lean forward and pluck a half-filled glass that's already on the table and hand it to him. He imbibes a clear fluid, makes a face. You know I drink cognac. Give me some. Finish the story, I say. I really, really want to hear this. So does she. Yes, Darlene encourages, flinging another grape from her fist into the air and catching it with her teeth. Didn't you tell me they shot lightning out of their bodies? Plasma, the captain corrects her. Bright, hot plasma that turned our equipment into fireworks and flaming wrecks. We tried all kinds of defensive measures. After 17 trillion trade notes wasted on that shit, we petitioned the IPC Congress for an attack fleet to subdue the natives. He shakes his head in disgust. Bunch of weak-kneed elitist philosophers. We needed the hydrogen. Do you have any idea how the economy would collapse without us? But the IPC was content to sit on their asses, whining about genocide. Genocide applies to people, not gas bags. I couldn't help myself. The words blurred out of their own accord. But they were intelligent, you said. Brilliant. Brilliant and deadly. Well, how did you kill them off? Captain Finch is silent for a while. He's forgotten his request for cognac. And to go behind the IPC's back. Got together 30 mercenary ships, costly as hell. Then his eyes focus on a faraway point in space and memory. Then I prompt feeling sick. Then we showed up in high orbit and started blasting the things to smithereens. Practically set the atmosphere on fire doing it. Darlene applauds, grapes flying from her hands. I wasn't finished, the captain's eyes were hard. Even with those ships, the gas bags put up a hell of a fight. They split up into roving bands and shot at us with plasma. Took down half our fleet. We had to park further and further out from Tempest, staying out of range. Practically had to squint to see what we were shooting at. But you cleared them out, Darlene says, confused by his anger. So all was fine. All was not fine. Took years to kill them all off, do you hear me? We started calling them Cloud Kings, because jellies didn't do justice to their cunning, their sense of purpose. A king defends his kingdom, right? And these things had a world to defend. When we finally cleared them out, man, there was debris, pieces of them everywhere. That's when we discovered those pieces could reunite. They could reconstitute with memories of dozens of outraged predecessors. And they remembered. Remembered our tactics and weapons. They started the fucking war all over again, but... Only now we had fewer ships, and the fucking IPC wasn't set up in our local system office. We barely put the jellies down again. The bristles. He nods, satisfied, though I imagine that his real body in its high orbital ship is shivering and sweating as he relives the sweaty hell of the old days. The bristles keep them dead. For a long moment, he says nothing more. People get up and skip off to private corners for secret intimacies. Even Darlene soon tires of his silence, and she leaves for entertainment elsewhere. Finally, Finch scowls at me. You're an asshole, Antarag. You know I can't stand remembering those days. You think you're something special maneuvering yourself into this kingship post, but, but look at you. You're a glorified maitre d'. He stands and hurls his empty glass to the floor. Fragments shower our feet and instantly dissolve into pixels. At the same time, a replacement glass appears on the table, but by then Captain Finch has already vanished too, abandoning the party altogether like a discontented spirit fleeing newly consecrated land. I'm sliding the visor off my face when crude hands wrestle me out of the chair. Controlman Velheth stands me up and shoves me into the midst of Indrani and Komal. 
He waves the pistol with menace, his eyes clouded in a rage that seems entirely out of proportion to the alarm. Here's a man not used to being challenged or deceived, I think. What were you doing, he demands of my grandfather. Tell me straight, what were you doing in the storeroom, Kamal? Weapons are not necessary. We are pacifists. We will not fight you. Then answer me, old man. Kamal sighs in his beard. I was distracting you, he says. Antarag's eyes sharpen. From what, you bastard? Kamal remains silent. The control man closes one eye and draws a bead on Kamal's knee, and I crazily think, he'll never walk with grandmother again. Stop, I cry. Kamal was distracting you from what I was doing. Antarag nods vigorously. I figured as much. What were you doing, you little bitch? It was my idea to come up here, and that's the truth. I... I thought of all the creatures that had been murdered, a genocide over decades, an entire species driven into oblivion. Controlman Velheth roars, Tell me! Uh, I wanted to, I stammer, looking guiltily to the plastic people with a pained expression. You know. Silence has many uses. Kamal turns away in disgust and marches back towards the elevator. Indrani shakes her head sadly and mutters, Oh, prima. But Antarag's eyes bulge in astonishment. A grin cracks his knobby face and he throws his head back with a hideous laugh. You wanted to get your rocks off, he shouts in a high-pitched cackle. The good little giant girl wanted to sow some wild oats. Ha! I hang my head in shame. Not any shame that I feel. The shame that we all deserve, all who had participated, willing or not, in the murder of an entire planet. Antarag stops around in a circle, holding his stomach with his pistol hand. Oh, you lying little whore. Ha ha! The perfect little people of a perfect little faith. He rushes over to me and grasps my shoulders. Did you eat steak? Or was it a different kind of meat you wanted to put in you? Indrani cuts in and takes my hand. We're done here, she snaps, leading me away from the room towards the elevator. I catch a glint of pride, not anger, in her eyes. She squeezes my hand in a rare allowance of emotion. Thank you, mother, I whisper. Thank you, daughter, she whispers back. And from behind us, Antareg cries out, You people made my day! Strange, I think, how utterly genuine he sounds when he says it. Even madmen can, from time to time, speak the truth. Eight months pass. Twelve more teams of giants immigrate from Midsummer's Dream, replacing bellcap teams who are only too happy to abandon their tedious, low-paying posts. Once they're settled in their own bellcaps, Komal pays them personal visits and explains what's been happening. He tells them of the genocide on Tempest, and they are only too happy, after hearing the tale, to deactivate the spire bristles, the jellies, the cloud kings have been growing and multiplying as a result. They are truly immense creatures, and yet I know it's unlikely they've attained the full girth of adulthood in only eight months. Already they're half as large as the bellcap stations. They grow out of the debris, which continues to accumulate here in greater and greater numbers. Piece by piece, the ancient race is putting itself back together. Intelligent? Yes, indeed. Indrani and Parul devise a rudimentary system of communication involving pulses of colored light. The Cloud Kings gather around the bell caps now like friendly balloons. They allow the airborne slugs to alight on them, as must have been the pattern long ago. They don't tell us much, but we've managed to convey our intentions. In return, they've expressed their thanks. They have promised not to hurt us. Us. 
as in the ones who helped them, as in the ones who stopped the genocide and allowed them to come back from the dead. Now I stand outside on the Atmo processor spire with Komal and Injani and Parul and Jita watching the Cloud Kings depart. They fill the sky above us like fiery halos ascending towards heaven. What triggered their flight, I ask? Where are they going? They did not tell us, Komal mutters. The Ladar showed them moving off in an unexpected migration. We asked them what they were doing, but they did not respond. My stomach knots and I swallow down a welling of emotion I do not care to identify. They have all changed to the same color, I observe as they ascend out of sight, converging like tiny fires on Lindorm refueling station. They have been blue or green or violet for months. Now they are all red. My grandfather nods. The colors derive from their emotional state. Blue and green are closest to friendly curiosity. Violet appears to be a state of equanimity. And what are they feeling now? Rage, my grandfather says, his voice tinny in my headset. Every last one of them is filled with rage. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Brian. Brian, thank you so much. And Bill, what can I say? Fantastic, sir. Fantastic. And like I say, big thoughts again to your brother as well, thinking about him. So, now before we get into Jim Science News there, do you think you could do better than Brian? Do you know what I mean? Can you, can you write a story as good? Starship Sova, and actually, Starship Sova, Tales to Terrify, and Farfetch Fables are opening up very, very soon to submissions. So, the only way I can kind of do it is if you want to kind of Obviously, I'll be announcing on the show, but pop over to the kind of submissions submissions page on Starship Sova or any one of them, and you know register. And we'll we'll alert you. Do you know what I mean? You'll get on like an email list, and we're going to in that email list, we're going to kind of teach you how to kind of you know, just how to get correctly onto the kind of editor's desk. You know what I mean? What kind of winds us up? You know, little tips and tricks and everything like that. So if you want to be kind of if you want to try and get onto Starship Sovas, you know, and, and get a story on there, which would be fantastic. You know what I mean? If a listener can get stories on, it would be amazing. But listen, trust us. A lot of <laughs> just trying to choose my words carefully there. A lot of people don't read the guidelines or don't just do, you know what I mean? And it could be a great story. All that hard work and it just you know, so there's certain things we'll kind of want right. And this newsletter, hopefully. We'll kind of just give you a little some examples, and I'll kind of I'm going to you know interview other you know other dignitaries in the kind of editor world, and just to try and make you the, give you the kind of best possible chance. But like I say, register, and we'll let you know when our submissions are open because it would be fantastic. You know, we really want stories by our listeners. That would be fantastic, and. My God, man, if we hit the Patreon, we even pay us. Do you know what I mean? For 2016, if we can pay writers, that would be fantastic. So there's a there's a great excuse to go over, go over to Patreon right now. Right now, man. Oh, yeah, it's getting carried away. It's getting too much coffee in the end here. Right. So next up is, or finally is, Science News with our GGA Campanella. Jim, sir. Greetings and microcephalic trepidations, my blendigitously taciturn listeners. And welcome to this November 2015 Science News Update. I'm your host for this 
unstintingly gleeful science podcast segment, Jim Campanella. Okay, now it has been two months without any mail from listeners. I'm beginning to worry. Am I doing something wrong? If it wasn't for the occasional Facebook comment, I would wonder if I was not secretly being edited out of the Starship uh, Sofa cast. Hmm, well, perhaps the first story of the night will make you write to me. Maybe this big controversy will get you so outraged that you'll put pen to paper in droves. Okay, here it is. Have you ever wondered where dogs came from originally? Asia? Africa? Europe? The pet store down the block? Well, Dr. Adam Boyko of Cornell and his colleagues shed some new light on the evolution of man's best friend in a paper published back in October in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Science. Genetic studies have previously indicated that dogs were first domesticated in China, but the fossil record now points to possible origins in Europe and Siberia. There was obviously a problem with those contradictory findings, Boyko's group did a much more comprehensive genetic study of dog populations from around the world. His team, an international team, genotyped 5,392 dogs using blood stored in the Cornell Veterinary Biobank. The samples included blood from 549 village dogs, quote-unquote, from 38 countries, which are not descended from the purebred or mixed-breed populations in Europe, but instead come from rural areas from around the world where they have been allowed to breed naturally. As a result, these so-called village dogs are more genetically diverse and have older lineages than the purebreds, making them, quote, a better reflection of the genetic structure present in dogs before the modern era, unquote. That comes directly from the paper. Comparing the non-sex chromosomes, called autosomes, the Y chromosomes, and mitochondrial DNA, the researchers concluded that domestic dogs originated in Central Asia and then expanded to East Asia and beyond. Boyko says, quote, We looked conclusively to see if there was evidence of multiple domestication events, and like every other group that's looked for it, we found no evidence of it, unquote. The team also noted some other details regarding other canine populations. For example, Dogs of the tropics and South Pacific were descended from later European stocks, but many Asian populations had little evidence of European inbreeding. The latest results don't close the case on dog evolution, but they provide another point of evidence for an Asian origin. Next story. Is LG evil or just in cahoots with evil? Well, perhaps it's not evil, but maybe algae is doing more harm in the world than even aquatic biologists believed. Dr. David Dunigan of the University of Nebraska has just published a paper in the Journal of Virology last month that suggests that evil viruses connected to algae may be the key to the collapse of Western civilization. No, I, I'm exaggerating. Or a little bit. But they're really very bad. Dunigan's team provided the first direct evidence that an algae-infecting virus can invade and potentially replicate within some mammalian cells, known as, hold your breath for this one, Acanthocystis terfacia chlorella virus 1, or ATCV1. The pathogen is among a class of chloroviruses, which have been long believed 
to take up residence only in green algae. That thinking was changed back in 2014 with a study from University of Nebraska that found gene sequences resembling those of ATCV1 in throat swabs of human participants. This new study, Response of Mammalian Macrophages to Challenge with Chlorovirus ATCV1, directly introduced the algae virus to macrophage cells that serve critical functions in the immune systems of mice and humans and other mammals. By tagging the virus with fluorescent dye and then assembling three-dimensional images of mouse cells, the authors determined that ATCV1 successfully infiltrated them. Dudigan also measured a three-fold increase in ATCV1 within 24 hours of introducing the virus. The relatively modest spike nonetheless suggests that ATCV1 can replicate within macrophage cells. Though a few studies have documented viruses jumping from one biological kingdom to another, chloroviruses were previously thought to have a very limited host range. In other words, nobody thought that they could get into the animal kingdom and then reproduce. Dunigan says, quote, A few years ago, no one I know would have made a prediction like this. You probably would have been laughed out of the room. But we are now in the middle of something that is very interesting, unquote. They found that these macrophage cells from the immune system underwent multiple changes that were characteristic of a cell breached by a virus. These changes eventually included a form of programmed cell death that virologists consider an innate scorched earth defense against the spread of viruses, which require living cells to survive and replicate. If the cell's not alive, the virus can't be passed along. The cell kills itself and the virus can't spread. So how bad is this algal viral infection? Well, bad enough. Before dying, the cells exhibited multiple signs of stress that tentatively support links to cognitive impairment. The authors measured a post-infection rise in interleukin-6, which previous research has linked with diminished spatial learning and certain neurological diseases. The authors also reported an increase in nitric oxide, which is an important signaling molecule that's been associated with memory impairment when it's produced in excess. The study found that those with the ATCV1 infection performed worse on measures of visual processing and visual motor speed. Mice inoculated with the virus showed similar deficits in memory and attention while navigating mazes. The paper further suggests that ATCV1 altered the expression of more than 1,000 genes in the rodent hippocampus. That's an area of the brain tied to memory and spatial navigation. The upshot of all this is that we may have found another source for cognitive dysfunction in people around the world that we, well, really might never have previously considered. Next story, Cerebro? Even if you're not a comic book geek like I am, you have probably seen the X-Men movies. Do you remember the computer Cerebro? If you don't, let me refresh your memories. That's the supercomputer that was built by Dr. Xavier, the founder of the X-Men. When he puts on its helmet, he's able to merge with the computer and use its functions directly. The merging of man and machine allowed for the system to work much more efficiently. In the comic and the movie, he uses his own telepathic abilities, but the machine enhances those abilities. 
If you're expecting me to say that someone has built a computer that allows you to find psychic mutants in the general population, then you're going to be sorely disappointed. That's not it. However, for those of you who have read lots of speculative fiction that involves gestalt organisms and the merging of brains to create a super brain, then I may have what you're looking for. Duke University neurobiologist Dr. Mikhail Lebedev and his team have created brain-machine interfaces that allow input from multiple rat or monkey brains at once, allowing them to solve computational programs or manipulate robotic movements better than when a single animal controls a machine. This was reported in October in the latest issue of Scientific Reports. Brain nets, quote-unquote, which stands for brain networks, as Lebedev has dubbed them, act like living computers, and they could one day be designed with human brains in mind to enable collaborative problem-solving, new forms of communication, or better control of prosthetic limbs. Yes, they could be used just like Dr. X in the comic directs his wheelchair. Lebedev says, quote, We exchange information all the time using cell phones or Skype or natural interfaces, so why not do it directly from brain to brain? This is about brains solving tasks together in a new way, unquote. Lebedev and his colleagues began neuroengineering monkeys a couple of years ago. Each monkey had a microarray of electrodes in their brain, measuring the activity of a few hundred specific neurons. The scientists connected two monkeys at a time to a brain-machine interface. They specifically designed so that each monkey would contribute 50% to the movement of a robotic arm. Not only did this setup work, the monkeys jointly moved the arm toward a central circular target, but they hit the target with higher precision than when one monkey alone controlled the arm. Lebedev says, quote, Each single monkey brain produces noisy signals, but when you have output from several monkeys, you get a higher information to noise ratio, and the noise becomes insignificant, unquote. Now, this is creepy as hell, but the researchers noticed the animals started to work together more efficiently over time, despite the fact that they weren't directly interacting with each other, but only interacting with a screen. Lebedev comments on this, saying, quote, The monkeys realized that they were contributing and started to adjust. The slower monkeys started to go faster, for instance. They really started to cooperate, unquote. See? Creepy. So once they had their rat models working as well as the monkeys, Lebedev applied the synchronized superbrain to a few real-life computing challenges. The rats were able to classify two different stimuli, one consisting of 20 bursts of electrical activity and the other two sets of eight pulses. While the first pattern led them to synchronize their brain activity, the second pattern led to desynchronization. The researchers next designed an algorithm that translated weather information, either temperature or barometric pressure, to be expressed as one of the two stimuli. By sending different combinations of trends in temperature and pressure to four sets of rats, the researchers were able to calculate predicted precipitation patterns. They had created a real-life weather forecasting machine. Again, creepy. As in the monkey experiments, the key benefits 
of the rat brain nets is that the noise or error rate that exists when a single animal performs a task is minimized when multiple animals are repeating it or overlapping. Okay. You want creepy? I'll give you even more creepy. You thought I was joking about Professor X's wheelchair? Well, Lebedev's team reported at the annual Society for Neuroscience meeting this month that his brain net monkeys can cooperatively control a wheelchair. Yes, X-Men, here we come. Or maybe it'll be X-Monkeys. X-Monks? Ah, uh, whatever. All right. Up next, several short, quick stories. First, caffeine screws up your circadian rhythm. According to a new story in the journal Science Translational Medicine, consumption of the equivalent of a double shot of espresso could actually extend your circadian rhythm. In the study, the effect of caffeine on circadian oscillations and melatonin levels were assessed within the organism and outside the organism. Inside the organism, in vivo, the authors observed that consumption of caffeine three hours before bedtime resulted in a 40-minute delay in melatonin rhythm. As a result of this delay, the effects of caffeine would also be felt the next day. Disruptions in melatonin rhythms and subsequent extension of the circadian clock will also affect bedtime the night after. The mechanism for this confirmed by in vitro assays in tissue culture as well, demonstrating that U2OS cells, the caffeine increases cyclic AMP production. So basically, too much coffee and you're going to have a problem. Next story, wasp venom may have a potent anti-cancer activity. This paper is from September, and it was in the Biophysical Journal. And it suggests that peptides derived from wasp venom can have multiple therapeutic benefits. See, wasps aren't so bad after all. A protein called MP1 is an example of one of these peptides. MP1 is derived from wasp venom and has known antimicrobial properties. However, MP1 also displays specificity against cancer cells. The reason for this has been unclear until recently, when this study that was published in the Biophysical Journal described the mechanism for how MP1 has anti-cancer potential. In the study, the authors found that membrane fats are distributed differently in cancer cells compared to normal cells. The study suggests that MP1 binding to cell membranes also increases membrane susceptibility to permeabilization, the ability of the membranes to allow stuff back and forth through. And it also increases the size of the pores that are formed in the membrane. Altogether, the findings confirm the potential MP1 has as an anti-cancer agent. This would make any cancer cells exposed to MP1 more susceptible to a variety of treatments as opposed to normal cells. In other words, that alteration in the permeability of the cell membrane would be deadly in certain circumstances. Third short story. If you don't get enough sleep, you are more likely to get a cold. Yes, your mom was right. This story was published in the journal Sleep last month. Sleep duration directly correlates with susceptibility to common colds. In the study, 164 healthy participants monitored their sleeping patterns by wrist actigraphy and sleep diaries over seven days. After that period, the volunteers were administered the rhinovirus via nasal drops. 
The rhinovirus, if you didn't know it, is the cold virus. And they were then monitored for another five days to see whether they displayed cold symptoms. Based on the findings of the study, participants who slept less than six hours a night were significantly more likely to develop a cold. 30% of adults became sick if they slept less than six hours a night, compared to less than 20% if you slept more than seven hours. While the mechanism for how sleep affects the immune system is still not quite clear, the study confirms yet another reason to get a good night's sleep. Next story. I have reported on several new forensic tests over the last few months, including being able to extract DNA from fingerprints and being able to tell one person from another by their brain signature. Well, the next story doesn't exactly blow both of those away, but it certainly makes you stop and think for more than just a moment. There was an article published in last month's issue of Peer Journal, which, by the way, I've never heard of. Anyway, it gives evidence that suggests that each of us has a microbial signature, a population of microbes that is unique enough so that we can distinguish it between individuals. Previous studies have shown individuals can be identified simply from the microbiota samples taken from different parts of the body. However, it turns out we are actually surrounded by a cloud of microbes, which follow us wherever we go. Dr. James Meadow of the University of Oregon and his colleagues collected air samples of individuals during and after sitting in a sanitized chamber. At different time periods, the samples were collected and sequenced to analyze the microbial components and they found that the occupants could be detected by airborne bacterial emissions within one and a half to four hours after leaving the room. Not only that, but in most circumstances, the samples were distinct enough between individuals to be identifiers. So for the first time, the study shows not only that part of our microbiome is airborne, but that it is unique to each of us. I imagine that you can use this information forensically to see who has been in a room for the last four hours, but I also imagine it would become a very difficult feat if there were a whole series of people who had been in that room. I also suppose that if someone had some very unique bacteria in their microbiome that no one else had, then it might be a bit easier. So, Dr. Fenstermacher, you are the murderer of Polly Pretty Penny. We know this because you are the only person in this entire city who reeks of Pseudobacterium malefactor, subspecies X114, and we found loads of it hanging about in the air over the body. Come with us, sir. Perhaps that could go in another direction entirely. So, Dr. Unterwager, we believe you framed Dr. Fenstermarker for the murder of Miss Pretty Penny. Not only did you have access to Fenstermarker's microbiome data, but you also had a complete microbiology laboratory in which we found Pseudobacterium malefactor, subspecies X114, growing in petri dishes. We have evidence that you vacuumed the air around Miss Pretty Penny's body to mask your own presence and sprayed Pseudobacterium in its stead. Come with us, sir. As usual, the titillating story of the night is the last one, so if you feel particularly sensitive to stories about reproduction, then just skip ahead in the podcast to the end. So here we go. When did penises evolve? 
Anybody? Anybody at all? Well, the answer is, a long time ago. There, I've got you. All right, Dr. Thomas Sanger of the University of Florida is quite interested in penises. Uh, maybe I should rephrase that. He is interested in the evolution of the penis and reports in Biology Letters, the journal, on some new evidence in a lizard from New Zealand about where they may have originated. The Tuatara, a lizard-like species in New Zealand, never grows a real phallus. Yet according to Sanger, as an embryo, this lizard starts forming tiny nubbins like those that turn into the great diversity of sperm delivery organs in other mammals and reptiles. In Tuatara, the phallus development then stalls, but Sanger says that the initial burst of development supports the scenario that the phallus evolved just once in mammals and reptiles. With the Tuatara on the brink of extinction, conservation managers would not permit sacrificing of any of their embryos to study phallic history. But Sanger knew of some fragile old microscope slides of Tuatara embryos in the Harvard Museum of Comparative Zoology. They had come from a Victorian expert on sponge taxonomy who sojourned in New Zealand and developed a side interest in Tuatara specimens provided by a friendly lighthouse keeper. I don't know, but to me that sounds like the sequel to The Piano. Anyway, uh, Sanger photographed 82 of these delicate slices of an embryo. He and his colleagues then digitally cleaned up the imagery of the tissues that were failing with age and combined the rest into one 3D image. The image revealed one of the characteristic paired nubbins that other reptile and mammal embryos grow as their external genitals start to develop. In the Tuatara's closest living relatives, the snakes and lizards, the nubbin grow into a pair of insertable organs, quote-unquote. For a species with a single penis, mammals, turtles, crocodilians, and the few phallus-endowed birds, the two buds fuse. Sanger says, quote, genitalia across the animal kingdom evolve at breakneck speed. They are the fastest evolving organ. Almost anything you can think of, and lots of things you cannot or would not think of, have arisen and sometimes disappeared again in the nether regions, unquote. Finding that the Tuatara still retains a trace, albeit briefly, of the developmental process that starts phallus formation, may resolve a long-standing debate whether the Tuatara lost an ancestral reproductive organ or its cousins independently gained a pair. The rare reptile probably lost the phallus they once shared with snakes and lizards, the researchers conclude. Other evidence suggests that most bird species also lost an ancestral phallus. The Tuatara's loss fits tidily into the scenario that some basic penis evolved just once from mammals, birds, and more recent reptiles that the older reptiles evolved into. Well, that's all for me for now. As always, take care. Keep an eye on that late coffee consumption. Keep away from evil algae and all that accompanies it. Keep that personal bacterial cloud to yourself. And I hope I've inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella. There you go. There you go. Jim, what? 
I always say, what can I say? Well, it means a lot, doesn't it? Bloody hell. He's been here nearly 10 years with his man doing this. 10 years in 2016. Jim, sir, thank you very much. So don't forget, Patreon, yes, support the shows. Do you know what I mean? It would be fantastic. We would love, man, how we are, man, to pay writers. And actually, the next one up is pay staff. Do you know what I mean? Yes, it might not be much, but by God, the next one after that, I'm quitting work. I swear to God, I'm out of there, man. Oh, so do the right thing. Support the shows. It would be fantastic. We're on our own now. Big again, once more, a big thank you to Octagon Technology because they've still got a few weeks left of kind of support, you know what I mean? But we know we are losing them, which is a crying shame. But, you know, they're <laughs> just like taking the bloody safety net away. So that's it. Until next week, just like to say, good night from me. survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. Evacuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in 3, 2, 1... This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Work dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.